Hello, and welcome to the IQT Podcast. I'm Dylan George, and I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. Caitlin Rivers, as a co-host for a special BNEC series on outbreak analytics and forecasting. You may be asking yourself, what is outbreak analytics and forecasting? Well, Caitlin and I will explore the topic with you. In this series, we will investigate what it is, how it has been used to help with pandemic response efforts, and what we need to improve these capabilities. Along the way, we will chat with a range of special guests who have developed or used advanced analytics for decision-making during outbreaks. These guests include world-class modelers that have worked to help understand pandemics and people who have been leading responses. We'll also talk with people working on technologies that could be useful for collecting, cleaning, aggregating, and analyzing data, the data that are needed for outbreak analytics and forecasting. So I think it'll be a fun series and we're excited about it and enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone. My name is Dylan George. I'm a vice president at BNEXT, which is the biodefense initiative from IQT focused on preparing for and mitigating biological threats that impact national security. Uh, today, we're joined on the podcast by Dr. Marita Zimmerman. Marita has a PhD in health economics and outcomes research from the University of Washington, a master's in public health from Brown University, and a bachelor's science in chemical and biomedical engineering from Carnegie Mellon University. So clearly, Marita isn't very smart. Uh, so for those that didn't pick up on that, that was a joke. Um, Marita works at the Institute for Disease Modeling, where she models the economic effects of infectious disease and vaccination and assesses value of interventions. As a health uh, economist, Marita is looking to optimize control measures given resource constraints. Um, I've had the pleasure of being in multiple briefings where Marita has helped local decision makers understand the latest idea models and their results, uh, and have shown the, that have shown the epidemiological trends of COVID-19. These briefings have been exceptionally informative, thought-provoking, but more importantly, they have helped frame potential actions to fight COVID-19. Uh, Marita has a talent for describing complex systems and dynamics in an easy-to-understand language so that people can take action. Uh, Marita, thank you for being here. We appreciate you taking time to talk with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you. Uh, this experience of working on COVID modeling has been a new experience for me in working with decision makers in a new way in the U.S., so I'm looking forward to talking with someone who's an expert in that kind of communication. <laughs> And I love That's talking great. about science and modeling, so a captive audience is, will be great. It's always good. Yes, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So first, uh, uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself your, and your background and what got you excited about working on infectious diseases, modeling, and any kinds of um, experiences that you've had with uh, uh, different kinds of analytics, including forecasting. <clears throat> sure. So uh, well, most of my work has been in global health, and I started getting interested in global health when I was in undergrad, I said that stereotypical experience of volunteering in the townships and seeing the disparities in health of how I grew up compared to how people in the townships of South Africa were growing up and thought this is something that could really yeah. make a difference. Um, yeah. So I, I, it took a, a little time to figure out specifically where in this broad fit field of public health I fit in. But I think the, the infectious disease modeling area is unique in that 
we can use very technical, very scientific methods and apply those to very practical decision making. And that stands out from a lot of the other types of really deep science applications that it's hard to see day to day how your work can really change a policymaker or a funder's decision right away. And infectious disease modeling, I think we really have a lot, a lot of opportunity to do that. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And that's what drew, drew me to it as well. Uh, what, how did you end up at the Institute for Disease Modeling? Um, yeah. In in your grand trajectory of your career. Yeah. So after my postdoc, which was actually in U.S. health, so it was a little bit of a shift back to global health to work at the Institute for Disease Modeling. But I, it, well, for one thing, it's local in Seattle where I did my my PhD. So I was lucky to have this institute, you know, it, nearby, so I could have more right around the corner. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, but I was really looking for somewhere that I could do health economics and disease modeling and somewhere that I could have access to policymakers or decision makers. And, you know, not to say that an academic's work isn't equally important. Your work is going into a wider body of knowledge and that we need that body of knowledge. But I feel more passionately about my day to day work when I can see the impacts of that more quickly. So maybe that's just impatience, but the access we have to decision makers uh, gives me a little bit more drive day to day. And I really appreciate not having to apply for grants. That process is very <laughs> tough. <laughs> yeah, no, someone once, re- once referred that process to me. It's like you have to pick your poison. Do you sit through endless amounts of meetings or do you sit through endless amounts of grant applications? <laughs> uh, yes, know. that is a good point. <laughs> yeah, but IBM, I think, does a beautiful job of, of shielding um, uh, you all from that, that process and, and allowing you to actually do great work. I mean, it's a great cadre of people. I mean, I've known uh, Bob Hart and, you know, um, Ben Althaus for a long time. They're just exceptional. And I mean, it's, they're no, they're not unique in among your colleagues too. They're just, you, you've got a deep bench. Yeah. Yeah. We have about, I think we have about 40 or 45 researchers and all PhD level researchers, all doing independent research and all having the opportunity to, to some extent, choose their own research agenda. So it just leads to so much innovation in both methods and application. And, and so when you've talked with um, kind of like the non-initiated or the non-technical sorts of folks about uh, disease modeling, infectious disease modeling generally, um, how have you described the value of what you're trying to do beyond kind of this real um, interface with, with, with policy like you described, how have you tried to, how have you described it to your mom or your dad? Yeah. Yeah. So I would say uh, we can only learn so much from data directly. So if you want to understand how much polio there is in the world, we can see how many reported polio cases there were in different countries in each year. But in order to eradicate polio, which was is one of the main global health goals that we are trying to undertake right now, uh, we need to not only understand how many cases were reported in each country, but how we expect that to change over coming years and what we think that means about how many people had polio but didn't, it wasn't reported. And in order to do that, the methods that we have to understand that are modeling methods. So we can use the data that we have and our wider 
understanding of where that data came from and how polio physiologically works to understand uh, how we think it'll change in the future. And that's how we can better target interventions in, in order to be able to control the disease. Yeah, no, that's a really great description. I think that is fairly, very accurate or um, accessible that way too. You know, one of the things that I think that's been really great that uh, you guys at um, uh, IDM and, and have been doing and how you have been communicating that in some of the briefings I've been in is, is looking at what are the dynamics and how is spread changing through time in particular places and what does that mean uh, for decision makers in, in going forward. That has been, you know, I think that uh, you've done an exceptional job, one, of quantifying that and visualizing it in a way that is accept, accessible by decision makers, but also, in the like I said, in the briefings I've been with you, you've done an exceptional job of explaining a very complex uh, idea very succinctly. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's one of the really interesting parts of COVID is this science communication and even just over the past few months, you can see both wins and losses in terms of science communication. <laughs> yes. But I think that that understanding of what modeling is, this has really opened the door for modeling conversations Agreed. more than any other disease has. I mean, everyone knows what r not is now. How many yeah. people do what Arnott is before this? <laughs> I, I can, yeah, I, I've said this multiple times in, in previous podcasts, though, too. It's like when my sister started talking to me about the second wave of 1918 and um, describing <laughs> different um, uh, Arnott values in Florida, then it's like, oh, yeah, we've hit, oh, we've, yeah. We're, we're in a different place now. Yeah. 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 Uh, it, my, my sister's wonderful. She's really, she's actually very brilliant. And it's, uh, um, but it wasn't something she studied. So, Her field, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. The, um, uh, you know, one thing that I, and one thing that I, I think one of the intuitions that I developed as well, um, in thinking about COVID really deri was derived from some of the materials that you all put out in terms of thinking about how R not was starting, given all the things that we're doing with, um, population wide, blunt instrument, stay at home, everybody just shut down all movement and how much that really was effective at reducing spread of the virus but it didn't reduce it below one in a very substantive way. And so we needed to think about a whole new way of how do we suppress um, the spread even further. And um, I think, like I said, seeing some of the, your briefings and seeing some of the models that uh, IDM put out was really helped crystallize those kinds of concepts for me. And I think, again, for some of the people that you were briefing, I think that it really hammered those those, those concepts home as well. Yeah, I think that one of the things that I really try to communicate with modeling results is that we will never be able to predict an, a point estimate. We can never tell you there will be this many cases in Washington on this day. And that's not the goal of modeling. We are not yeah. trying to do that. And if a modeler ever tells you that, you should definitely not trust them. Not pay attention. But yeah, exactly. we, we can tell you, hey, we threw every intervention we could think of into this model and we still didn't get our effective below one. That really tells us something. Or if we say we threw all of these interventions into the model and one intervention made a big difference while all the other interventions were just playing at the margins. Those are the kind of messages that we really want to drive home, not the specific case count numbers. Yeah. And, you know, there was a the, the recent kind of presentation that you gave on school, you and your colleagues um, gave on school reopening. 
Um, obviously, one of the main points there was the context within which uh, the community context within which a school was being reopened was critical for understanding how effective different measures within the school would be in actually mitigating uh, uh, follow-on spread. Um, The other thing that was particularly, because of the way that the the model was constructed so effectively to show the uh, essentially layered on multiple types of interventions that could be applied for school reopening, it really highlighted to me because the need for testing, fast testing, and fast contact tracing. Because without those things, we're we're in a world of hurt. Where the spread's going to be unmitigated and it's going to keep going forward, and we're not there quite yet uh, in those capabilities. Yeah, yeah. My <laughs> colleague Jamie Cohen has done a great job leading that work, and I think she she really emphasized that point that you can't just think about school reopening. You have to think about all of the other interventions that are happening outside of the school because inside of the school is not separate. We're all connected in terms of this disease, and those capabilities, like you said, of testing, of contact tracing, of understanding where where and how the disease is spreading, those have to be in place before we can safely decide to reopen the schools. So as you've done um, various types of analyses on um, uh, COVID-19, what has been some of the challenges that you've experienced with um, either doing the analyses acquiring the and using the data or communicating results uh, so that they have impact? What, what has been some of the big challenges that you've confronted? Yeah, data availability is definitely our biggest challenge. And we are lucky in Washington. We have a close relationship with the policymakers and the Department of Health, and they have been very open with helping us to understand the data and use the data in a way that's helpful for us to be able to inform them. It's a very mutually beneficial relationship. But even with that relationship, there's just not enough data to be able to fully understand this disease. And it's not anything to do with even how the data is collected directly. It's just that this disease not everyone gets tested, not everyone has symptoms. There's a lot of underlying disease that we're just not gonna be able to know about. So that means that there is uncertainty in our model. And especially early in the epidemic, when we had very few reported cases, there was a lot more underlying uncertainty. So we're getting better as we learn more and as we have more people getting tested. But as things like right now happen that there's starting to be a shortage in testing reagents and there that mm-hmm. means that there are more delays in getting testing results and fewer people may be able to be tested that is not only a limitation for those patients personally but also for us to be able to understand how the disease is changing i mean we're already so handicapped by the delays physiologically of the disease, that it takes time from when you are infected to when you have symptoms to when you get tested to when we get the result. So by the time we know what's happening and we can put that into the model for projection, we're already weeks behind. So that's definitely, that's just going to be a challenge. Yeah, I think that's been the persistent kind of challenge for people to get wrap their heads around. I think twofold. One is I think most people have kind of like a mental model of the pandemic as a natural disaster. So you have a peak, you get past the peak, 
and then you go into a recovery mode. And that's definitely not how pandemics work. It's not how infectious diseases work. Um, it's a very different dynamic, um, one. And two is this idea of um, spread continuing to move forward um, uh, unmitigated if, if you don't have some sort of control to keep it keep it going. Um, and, and so it's, I think it's, I think there's a really great comments in, in terms of how you get good data um, uh, from, from all the listings. So it sounds like if you had a magic wand, it would be to improve the data sources that you would be using so that we could actually guide situational awareness more quickly in some capacities. That's, am I characterizing that correctly? Yes, definitely. And at this point, the data that would be really useful is to have very detailed contact tracing data because in our models, we have explicit networks of people, you know, hypothetical modeled people, not actual Washingtonians. Yep. Yep. Uh, yep. But we have individual people with individual characteristics, and they go to work, and they go to school, and they go to the grocery store. And if we could understand in real cases, where are people getting infected? Is it when they're at work? Is it when they're just out in the community? That would really help our model to be more accurate in predicting future transmission. Yeah, I think that's a really great point, too, because I think a lot of people think of contact tracing as an, a mitigation or an intervention uh, modality, and, and it is that. Uh, but it also is exactly the way you described it, as a way to collect more and refine our understanding of the spread within a community so that we can become much, much more precise about how we're actually putting into future uh, interventions going forward. Um, I, I think of, you know, the, the, the example of, you know, long-term uh, healthcare facilities or congregate settings like meatpacking plants and everything were clearly sources of super spreading earlier on in the, in the outbreak. And now we, we have the problem of 15 to 29 year olds being the main source of spread going forward and trying to think about how to come up with good policies to, to mitigate those kinds of the spread within those groups. And, and we get that information primarily, I mean, from testing, yes but also very much from case investigation and contact tracing. So it's a, it's a, it's a mitigation and a data collection process as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had a very similar conversation even early in the epidemic about testing data. And, mm-hmm. you know, there was a lot of pushback that there's limited testing, and if there's not a specific treatment, then you just treat the patient as best you can. It doesn't matter. But we need that data to yeah. better understand the pandemic. and. Now we're at the same point for contact tracing that we need it to help understand for the individual patient, but also for our future projections. Yeah, no, I do think that I think you bring up a great point, though, too. There there was very interesting discussions about the ethics of doing testing early on. And it's like, well, you know, I mean, there's there's multiple reasons to do testing. Um, And and we shouldn't think of it just from a medical perspective of diagnosis for treatment, but rather for surveillance, for uh, fine-tuning mitigation for uh, at the population level as well. And, um, yeah, the disconnect between public health and health care, you know, persists and plagues us in these particular situations. Yeah. Yeah. So um, if you were going outside of data, um, uh, constraints and improving data. What other things would you focus on for transforming capabilities to do either better analytics um, to understand and characterize what's going on or to do projections and forecasts of, of where things are going? Yeah, so I think one thing that we need is just uh, more people who are interested and capable of doing technical modeling. 
And, you know, we have a team of probably 20 or so people working on COVID at IDM, which for us out of 40 people is a lot. That's pretty big. That's a big yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty big. But even with that, we're so limited in how many questions we can address because yeah. these are very technical methods and it takes time and we're churning out reports faster than we ever have before and people are working so hard to help our policymakers because it's a time of need for all of us. Yeah. But it would yeah. be really helpful even if we did some of the background work and established some of the modeling methods and then there was other people that said, hey, we understand this. We can take on some of this work and we can take your models in yeah. new directions. That would be great. Yeah. No, I, it, it reminds me of it. Um, you know, um, I often make analogies to weather forecasting when thinking about what are the kinds of analytics we need for pandemics. And, you know, one of the things that's been really great about using that, I mean, it, it breaks down in some ways, but in, in this particular sense, I think it works pretty well, is that for weather forecasting, we've developed this thing called the National Center for Atmospheric Research, which really does a great job of advancing the science of atmospheric um, uh, modeling and weather forecasting. Their main mission is just to improve the methods and, and, and figure out how to use better data more effectively. And so the National Weather Service then does operational modeling, where they take the best of breed from science, engineer it into an actual usable model that can be done on a day-to-day -day basis. And then you have your local meteorologists. They're actually out there actually interpreting those model results so that locals can make decisions and change behavior based on what they're seeing from the results going forward. We need to have a much similar system in what we're doing um, with infectious diseases. Um, and I completely agree with you that we have too few people focusing on this. We need to expand the science. We need to expand the engineering. We need to expand the technology. And we also need to expand uh, people like you that have a particular talent for actually explaining the results so that they're interpretable by people and actionable by decision makers. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I like that analogy. I mean, we've been working more closely with decision makers in the U.S. than we ever have before, but we're volunteers in that respect. Absolutely. You know, we we yeah. don't work for any federal or state or mm -hmm. local agency, and especially we've, we've built pretty good relationships at this point, but early in the yeah. epidemic, that was a handicap because we had to build trust both both ways, we had to build yeah. trust, we had to establish work streams, we had to establish relationships, and that put us behind a little bit as we were getting going. I like to think yeah. we've overcome a lot of that at this point, but, you know, it those seems you, had already been in yeah. place. It seems you've come a long way very quickly, which is wonderful. Uh, the thing that I get really concerned about, though, too, is like one of the things when I see the interaction uh, of you briefing different different groups and seeing it's like, oh, this is this is a model of how it could work broadly across the United States. The challenge that a lot of um, uh, state and local officials have is that they don't have IDM in their backyard. Yeah. Um, they don't have people like you. I mean, yes, there's great, great academics and great research institutions all across the United States, but not everybody, as you've pointed out, has studied this. And so um, figuring out how to scale what you're doing is one of the things that um, uh, we're, we're keenly interested in trying to think about how to do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we have made a very conscious choice to focus on modeling Washington, and there yeah. are other modeling groups that, that take more broad approaches and model the whole country or the whole world, and those are useful and valid in for other types of questions, but our type of modeling is a very deep understanding of one place, yeah. and we get a lot of requests for from other places 
for the reasons you mentioned, that they don't have this kind of institute right in their backyard. And we just don't have the capacity to do this this type of deep dive in multiple places. Yeah, and the unfortunate thing, too, is that people don't scale well, you know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you guys are allocating 20 people to this. And, you know, it's like we need to find ways to, to, um, as force multipliers, to scale talented people like you all and your team to figure out how to do this more broadly and and, and, and far-reaching. Yeah, it's great. Great example. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder so, if if we've we've seen so many armchair epidemiologists now after COVID, and <laughs> every everyone and their brother has done a COVID model and SEIR model at this point. I wonder if this will spark a little extra interest of some grad students or some other research institutes that maybe we'll see a little bit more growth in that in that area. I think so. I, I I'm hopeful. I am hopeful. Yeah. And so um, what are you all working on now? I mean, are there some things that you're developing um, uh, further? Um, what, what, what are the kind of things that, are, that, that you're, you're struggling with or, or working on right now? <clears throat> yeah, we have a couple work streams that are continuing to evolve. Uh, we are continuing on the schools analysis, which is really relevant right now, and continuing to look at some different ways that we could consider reopening schools and also continuing to look at contact tracing and uh, the interaction of testing and contact tracing. And I think both of those work streams are fitting under a bigger umbrella, um, uh, sorry, a bigger umbrella of equity concerns. We know that different types of people are more likely to get COVID and they're also more likely to, for example, be economically impacted by economic shutdowns and we are working to do a better job of understanding who is at risk and incorporating that into our models so that we can better target interventions for the people who are more at risk. Mm, nice, nice. That's awesome. Yeah. It's always interesting to hear what you guys are working on. And, um, you know, if people are interested in learning more about you as a person or about the institution, the Institute for Disease Modeling, and specifically about the the results that you guys are coming up with um, for COVID-19, where would they go to find out more information? Yeah, so all of our reports are publicly available. They're at covid.idmod.org. And we also make an attempt to have all of our GitHub, all of our code open source on GitHub. And if you have general questions, you can email covid at idmod.org. And for me personally, find me on Twitter at, at Marita Zim. Super. Well, you know, as always, uh, talking to you and learning from you is always just an absolute pleasure. And it's um, really been wonderful to take, for you to take time to talk to us about your research, the insights, and how you guys have been helping out with COVID-19. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. <clears throat> Thank you so much. This was a really fun conversation. Yeah, yeah. And thank you to the listeners for tuning in. Be safe and be kind.